O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, July the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are um, going to be looking at Deuteronomy 30, verses 9 to 14. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and then in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, uh, chapter 1, the first 14 verses there. So we've we've had a good week. We we had a great trip to Boston. A really really good time. It was we did an awful lot of walking while we were there. There were several days where we walked more than ten miles. Boston's that kind of a city though. The the way it lays out is more conducive to walking actually than than taking subways because roads go hither and yon and and there's a lot to see pretty much anywhere you go too. I mean things like the Freedom Trail and all that. We had a wonderful tour of the North End, which is one of my favorite places. It's certainly my favorite place in Boston, um, 88 Italian restaurants in a very compact area and all that. And so we um, had a wonderful eating tour uh, there led by somebody that, that I know uh, through social media, actually, and then took a, a tall ship around the Boston Harbor one night. And so we just had a really good time. Um, nice trip up to Freeport, Maine. They happened to be having an oyster festival while we were there with uh, local oyster farmers, uh, and it, it was fabulous. So we had a great time. It was a good trip. Glad to be there. Glad to be back. All those kinds of things. And you know, it's kind of had a good week this week. It's been hot here, um, but you know, it, it's been good. So anyway, things are going well. We're we're you know kind of moving on. Still praying, asking the Lord where He wants us to be, what He wants us to do, all that kind of stuff. So uh, everything's good. Everything's good. We are um, doing well. So anyway, let's roll into this thing. So the, the sort of the theme of today is something that that has that bothers some evangelicals because the people want want to say, well, it's all about faith. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. Well, it is. But believing leads to doing in the same way that um, a scientist comes up with a hypothesis, which is to say, I believe something. So a hypothesis is essentially, I believe something to be true, now let's test it and determine whether it is or not. But the only way to test it is to start moving down the road in the belief that it is, and that if I do these things, then I will prove that this is true. I used to be an investigator uh, doing financial work, and one of the things you, you frequently had to do was to say, I haven't seen this yet, but I believe it to be true. And so I, I would say, okay, I believe this to be something that's going on, and so then I have to prove that it did happen. But I start with a hypothesis based on some evidence, right? I mean, you don't just come up with a hypothesis in science or anywhere else completely out of the blue and go test it. It's something that you've noticed that you now want to say, I believe this. Let's go down the road of testing it to determine whether it is. But it requires action on your part to do that. So you're going to test it, and you're going to prove whether it's true or not. God told the Israelites constantly to test him. Just try. Do these things and see if I won't do this. Whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing, if you continue to do what you're doing, it's not going to go well with you, and ultimately I'll be forced 
to come in judgment against you. Or if you do these things, if you return to the Lord with your whole heart, which is the promise in uh, 1 Kings 8 when um, Solomon dedicates the temple, that he, he knows by, by experience, he knows people will turn away. They'll turn away from the Lord. They'll go after other gods. They'll pursue pleasure. They'll pursue whatever it is. But ultimately, they will turn away from the Lord. And, and it's like the old analogy of firing a gun. You know, if the, if the sight's off just one degree, then you're going to, by the time the bullet gets to the target, you're going to be way offline. And so if, to the extent that we start going down a wrong road, then, then the problem can be that we end up much further from our original destination than we could ever imagine. I mean, I, Suzanne and I were hiking one day, and we ran across a couple. This was probably in November-ish of 2020, so the first year of the pandemic and also after the time had changed. So we run into this Asian couple on a trail and, and just talked with them for a minute. And finally, after a couple of minutes, the woman pulled down her mask and said, do you know where we are? I said, I do. I know exactly where you are, but here's the important thing. Where do you need to be? And so she told us where they were parked. I said, okay, this is what you need. You've got two options. You can go back the way you came, and, and her face just fell. And she's like, we can't do that, and they couldn't. <laughs> they didn't have enough water for one thing, and it was about seven miles, and it was uphill. The last, like, mile is straight uphill. It's a brutal hike. Um, and then so I said the other option is you can get out here on the road. You can walk up the road. You can probably even hitchhike up the road it's not that far up here it's three four miles but it's straight uphill pretty much the whole way there's no flat space and he said okay let's do that and I said you stay on this white the trail with the white blazes and you go to here and then you get on the road and you go back and so he started walking and I heard him say hey so to his wife so we stay on the trail with the white blazes I said no 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 that's not what I said I said until you reach the road because the problem was is that once if he crossed the road now he's going to end up three or four miles different down the road in a different direction than he was already going. And, and so, uh, and, and it would have been dark way before he ever got there. And, and that would not be a place you'd want to be when it was dark because the last part of that hike is mostly switchbacks because it otherwise would be straight up or downhill depending on which way you were going. So I said, why don't you just do this? You go up to the road and I will drive my truck up there and I'll pick you up and I'll take you where you need to be. But that, that's the important thing, though, is that we got to start in the right direction. But, but it requires that we start. And so too much in evangelicalism teaches it's just about faith. And so people can come up with the idea that I, I had a confession of faith one time and I got baptized, so I'm good to go. That's not true. It's not true at all. It's intended to be something that you live out the rest of your life. It's intended to be a way of life. In fact, it's intended to be the way of life. And in walking in the way, in walking in faith, in walking in what you believe, then then you'll end up at the right destination. But if you don't ever start, if you don't move beyond baptism, you're not going to get there. You're not going to end up where you want to be. So anyway, that, that's probably the best way I can express the theme of, of the lessons today. It's about doing. That doesn't mean it's about works. It just means it's about doing. Your faith has to have legs. It would be as if God said, declared from the heavens, I love you. Well, that, that's nice, but the incarnation proves it. And that's exactly the way we're supposed to—we're supposed to incarnate our faith. 
And if we don't, then we can't properly call it faith. That's, that's just as basic as I can make it. It is not faith if you're not willing to live it out. So, and that's exactly what God says, and he says that here in, in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous. Who doesn't want that, right? I mean, that sounds so good that everybody flocks to that church out in Texas where the guy with the really nice hair and all that is, and the, the, you know, the, the, the very kind man, it, well, it depends on whether you're homeless or not, but it, the, the Lord God will make you abundantly prosperous. Is that the health and wealth gospel? Well, not quite, no in the work of all your hand, in the fruit of your womb. You'll have many kids. The fruit of your cattle. In other words, it, the cattle will also have plenty of offspring. So so your your wealth will increase, and in the fruit of your ground, everything you, that you grow. So in an agricultural economy, that, which is the reason that it's flowing with milk and honey, is because it's an agricultural kind of an economy, and that's the promise. And so God says, I, I'm going to prosper everything you do. He will make you abundantly prosperous in all these things. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. Here's the condition. The condition is when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Obedience. That's the sign of faith. That's the sign of believing God is good to walk in his ways. To do what he commands. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, I've commented on this before, that what is the sin that God charges Adam with? Obeying the voice of his wife. What is it that that Jacob does that gets him into trouble, that causes him to have to go on the run, go up and hang out and live with Laban, who's going to cheat him multiple times? He obeyed the voice of his mother. There, There are places where that's all just wrong. Moses, I'm not Abraham, when 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 Sarah says, "I need you to put that woman Hagar away," goes to God because he doesn't want to do it, as opposed to when he like you know had sex with Hagar and created a child. Now the child is there, and he doesn't want to put them away because he loves the child. He has some feelings for Hagar too, I think, but. He doesn't want to put him away, so so he does what he didn't do on the earlier occasion when Sarah suggested that he sleep with Hagar, and that is he actually goes, when she, when she says, here, do this, because he didn't want to do what she said, he goes to God and says, what do I do? And God says, obey the voice of your wife. So it's all right to obey the voice of your wife, as long as God says to obey the voice of your wife, because then you're obeying the voice of the Lord. But but that's what Moses says, that the, the God's desire to prosper you is, is completely contingent on when you obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God wants to prosper you, but it requires you to take steps in his direction. It needs for you to commit yourself to him and to Turn to him with all your heart and all your soul. Don't leave things on the table. No, push your chips all into the middle of the table and set them all in with him. Don't put some chips here and then some chips over here. No, if, if this doesn't turn out here at this table, I'll go to that table and play over there. So that table, well, that's the Baal table. I, I'm at the Yahweh table now. No, God says put all your chips into the middle of my table. Go all in when you do that. He says, then, it, then, then I'll prosper you. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us that we may hear it and do it. 
So it, it's not lofty and ethereal, and it's and it's not you know secret knowledge. No, no, no. It's very simple. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, "Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it?" But the word's very near to you; it's in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Do it. So it, it, it's it's not difficult. I didn't make this hard for you. And and when Jesus is asked, "What are the two? What is the great greatest commandment? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself." It's the second is like unto it. He says this is that simple. Paul says the same thing. You can you can boil all the law down to loving your neighbor as yourself. This is not hard. It's not hard at all. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You've got to do that do thing in order to do that, though. So loving your neighbor requires you to take action in order to do that. And, and every single uh, writer is clear on that. Paul's clear on what we need to do to love our neighbor. John the Baptist is clear when taxpayers and others ask him, what do we do? He tells them exactly what to do that your life is inextricably related to what your statement of faith is. John says that, that we, we can't say we love our brother if they're in need and we don't supply for it. Matthew tells us that Jesus talked about that the way we loved him was we visited people when they were in prison. They were sick and people took care of them. Did all the, they was hungry and gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. That's the way you love your neighbor. It's an active kind of thing. James says the same. Everybody agrees. I mean, this is not hard, but, but we've become so concerned and worried about works that we've made everything about faith to the point and the extent, and, and grace as well, that to the extent that people believe that, that they get it just because they made a statement of faith one time and had water poured on them. Mm-mm. No. No. I mean, John Wesley was really clear about this, and, and I don't agree with Wesley on, on certain parts of his theology, certainly, but, but what Wesley did was, in, in his day, he instructed his leaders, and, and those leaders' job was to take, uh, take baptisms, take confession of faith, do all that kind of stuff, but don't, and make a ledger, essentially, but don't move them into the converted section until you've seen them for six months and seen amendment of life. And so that, it's important that we do these things. So what Deuteronomy is telling us is this ain't hard. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to be a genius to understand God's law. But you have to be committed to it. And you have to believe that he's a good God and ultimately that he's a great God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you also have to believe he's a good God who wants not, it's not just a matter of not wanting to be punished. That's the great part. But the good part is to believe he actually wants to bless you and prosper you in the work of your hands, but what he requires is a commitment to him, a commitment to show people that you believe that he's great and good, and you show them that by the way you live your life, and you do that in a way that's different from other people in certain kinds of respects, and he lays all those out very clearly, but we've got to be willing to obey his voice, to go when he says go, to do when he says do, and to do the things he's already told us to do, because there's some things we don't need him to tell us to do because he's already told us once and for all time. And here what we get is in the gospel lesson, a lawyer, which is somebody who's not, a, not an expert in civil law. This would be somebody who is an expert in, um, in religious law. So he would be a, a sort of a, a scribe would be another way to say it. Um, one who decided disputes according to the law. Could be a rabbi, but no, he's, an, he's a lawyer. He stands up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we hear that same exact question in other Gospels from the, from the mouth of the rich young ruler. It's the same question. 
What do I do to inherit eternal life? So he knows that he's got to do something, right? So he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, the lawyer, you've answered correctly. Do this, do this, and you'll live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Well, how does that question get to the heart of justifying oneself? Well, the way that you justify yourself is is that you say, okay, I've done these things. If you tell me who my neighbor is, then I can tell you whether I've fulfilled that law. So he wants to justify himself. What, we're, what that means is, is that what Luke's trying to tell us is this guy believes that he's done it. In fact, he probably believes exactly what Peter did when he asked Jesus how magnanimous he had to be in forgiving others of their sins, and he suggested as many as seven times. Well, that's pretty magnanimous, right? Now Jesus says, no, 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 it's 70 times seven. In other words, you're never going to get there. <laughs> you're never going to reach it. You're, you're, you're supposed to forgive your brother as often as your brother needs to be forgiven. And part of that comes down to the recognition that I need an awful lot of forgiveness myself. And so here, what the question can be turned on its ear in the same way and, and to say that, that who is my neighbor, right? So, so I can ask that question in the same way that Peter asks, how many times do I forgive my brother? Because he was attempting to justify himself because I guarantee you Peter thought that he had exceeded the real demand of the law and he was willing to go as many as seven times. But Jesus says, no, it's an impossible number. And here he does the same thing with his answer to this lawyer, to his question about who's my neighbor. He, he sets an impossibly high bar. There's no way that you can completely fulfill this. But that's not meant to be uh, anything like to discouragement not to try. <laughs> right? so, so what the answer is, is is that you can't possibly do enough to justify yourself. You still need external justification. And so, so Jesus gives the answer to who is my neighbor. And, and let's see if he gives a direct answer to that, because he gives a very indirect answer and puts the burden and the onus on the man. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right, so what do we know about this man? Nothing. Nothing at all. He doesn't say he's a Jewish man, he's a Roman man, he's a Samaritan man. He doesn't tell us anything. A man. Some guy. Some guy. So I don't... uh, This guy is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, so they can place him in space and time. I know the road that he's on. And so, you know, they, they know where this guy is. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Half dead. That matters, actually. That detail matters to this story. They stripped him. He's naked. They beat him. They left him half dead. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. A Levite was somebody who helped in the, in, in the temple. So they were assistants to the high priests, to the priestly class. So they were the assistants. So both these people are, are, are on that road with them, and they came to the place and sees him, and he passed by on the other side. Well, why? There's a very simple explanation for that. <clears throat> he might be bleeding or he might actually be dead, or he might die on me. In contact with a dead body, or with blood, 
would have rendered them incapable of doing their service in the temple. So in other words, what they did was they made a a conscious decision that my service in the temple is so valuable that I can't afford to take the risk of being unable to do it. Now, who is it valuable to? Well, at this time, there were a huge number of priests. There were way more priests than there was need. And so now the priests and the Levites were living all among the people. And so they would go up to Jerusalem to perform the service, and they would go with high expectations and hopes. The priests would to be the one to go into the holy place, you know, to go in where the showbread was, where the altar of incense was, where the candles were. All that, they, they, where John the Baptist's father was when the archangel appeared to him. It was probably a once-in-a-lifetime experience at that time. So if I stop and this guy dies or he's already dead and I have contact with it, I'm knocked out. I'm completely knocked out. I'll never have a chance to do this. My, my job, my responsibility in that temple is so great that I can't take the risk of doing this. Well, mostly it, it's great to you because there's plenty of others who can do what it is you would otherwise be doing. So they made a value decision that it's more important that I go to the temple than to stop and deal with this guy. And then he says, but a Samaritan. Now, that's an important thing because they hated the Samaritans. In, in about 108 years before Jesus, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan ter- uh, temple, their place of worship, and ravaged the territory. About the time of Jesus' birth, this is how high tensions were between Jews and Samaritans at the time. About the time of Jesus' birth, Josephus tells us that some Samaritans came into the temple and scattered human bones in the temple in order to defile it. Why would they do that? Well, they believed at first that it was an abomination to the Lord to start with. So, But the other side of this, Jews didn't even refer to the Samaritans as a nation. They just called them a herd. There was a widely used proverb that they had that was a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is, no more, un, is, is more unclean than swine's flesh. I mean, they thought the Samaritans were phenomenally unclean. Now, on the other side, Samaritans were known to lie in wait for Jews who were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem for the feast days specifically. And sometimes they killed them. It's an amazing thing that the enmity between these two groups is almost beyond belief. The word Samaritan itself actually means keepers of Torah. They believed that they only had the five books of the law. They had the five books of Moses. They didn't have anything else. They believed that unfaithful Jews caused Eli, the priest before Samuel, to move the sanctuary from Shechem, where they lived, to Shiloh. They, they didn't believe anything that the Jews believed. They, the, the Jews, on their behalf, spurned the Samaritans as less than human They considered everything they touched to be like swine's flesh. They didn't allow them to give testimony in court. They couldn't become proselytes. They couldn't convert to Judaism. And they were publicly spurned in all the synagogues. They still exist today, by the way. It's one of the purest bloodlines on earth because they don't intermarry with anybody. And they've had to start recently because, well, they've got a lot of problems when you have a, a, a very shallow gene pool. So anyway, that's the so Jesus introduces a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, the, the man, was. The, the expectation here is, is what was he going to do? Is he going to finish him off? 
That must be what he's going to do, right? That's, that's, that's exactly the way this story is going to go. Nobody thought this was going to go in such a way that, that at the end of the story, the Samaritan was the hero of the story. But a Samaritan sort of intends, oh, my gosh, he's going to finish this guy off. He's going to do something terrible to this guy. No. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And that's a nice thing. Having compassion is a very nice thing. It's good. I'll pray for you, right? I mean, I'll pray. Let me pray for you. That's compassion, right? No. What did he do? He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The things that he had for himself and for his own journey, he takes these things. He binds this man's wounds. He cares for him. He doesn't just say, I'm going to pray for you. He doesn't say a quick prayer as he passes by. No, he stops, he goes, and he binds up his womb, pouring on his own provisions to help this man. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So he walks, the man's on the animal. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend I'll repay when I come back. So he has extended himself. He's given of his own provisions. He's allowed him to ride on his own animal. And now he's extending himself by saying, I, you know, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he's a Samaritan. I don't know if he's a Jew. I don't know if he's a whatever. And I've already shown you how much they hated one another. And it was completely um, on both sides. So he says, I'll pay you back when I come back. He will extend himself in every single way that he possibly can for this man. And then Jesus asked the question. Now we're at the end of the story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So let's go back to the beginning and review. What was the man's question? Who's my neighbor? How did Jesus answer that question? He answered by showing him what a neighbor was, what it meant to be a neighbor. It's more important to be a neighbor than to define the neighbor. So what Jesus essentially says is, because he doesn't tell us any details about the man, he doesn't say, well, he's a Jew, And because if he said he was a Jew, then they would go, well, I know that I have an obligation to him. But what he's saying is he's condemning the priest and the rabbi who passed him by because they considered something else more important. And I've told you this a million times, that, that one of the most important things, if not the single most important thing, that, that as a Jew you need to do is to show hospitality. And, and we're told this again and again, that showing hospitality to strangers, some people have entertained angels unaware. But it's important to do that. It's important to, in fact, Abraham did exactly that thing. He showed hospitality to strangers, the three men who were walking by in Genesis 18, and he was entertaining angels because that's who they were. So what we're told before that, though, is God came by to see him. It was right after the circumcision in chapter 17. God comes by to see him. We're told that. And then we're told these three men come. So what the Jews say is that, that that's, there's a value taught right there, and that is that it is more important to show hospitality to strangers than it is to attend to your conversation with God. You can walk away from God to show hospitality to strangers. In fact, you should, because Abraham did it, and there's no criticism. And so hospitality is a supreme virtue. So here, what's this man doing? He's extending hospitality in, in every single way that he possibly can to this, this stranger. 
this man. Doesn't matter who he is. But the Samaritan is the good guy, shockingly, in Jesus' story. So it, it's it, we are told what a neighbor is in the context of how do you love your neighbor? You do everything necessary. If somebody has need that you can supply, then do it. That is loving your neighbor. Because your neighbor is defined as the one who needs whatever you have to give. Anybody that needs something that you can take care of is your neighbor. And being neighborly is to extend yourself on behalf of that person to the extent that they need it. So in the epistle, Paul is beginning, he's saying howdy to the people in Colossae here in Colossians 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So it's from me and Timothy to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this is, that, that's Paul's normal greeting, grace and peace. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. We've heard two things about you. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and we also heard of the love that you have for all the saints. So what, what is he saying? We know that you love God and you love your neighbor. You have faith in Christ Jesus, God, and you love your neighbor. You love the saints. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And that's an important thing here. Is, is, is that, that we're able to do those two things to the extent that we're no longer fully concerned with things of this life. When we recognize the hope laid up for us in heaven, we're set free from many of the concerns of this life because we know something is more important than we're pursuing the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you do that, he says, all these things will be added unto you. And that's exactly what that Deuteronomy passage says. God will prosper you in all these ways if you obey his voice and keep his commandments. So setting his kingdom first will lead to blessing. That, that's not the way that it's typically preached. No, it's, it's taught that prosperity is the thing to be sought. That Paul and Moses say, that's it. and Jesus, say that that can be a happy byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We've heard reports of who you are from Epaphras, who is the one who is sort of the leader among you. We hear reports from him, and they're good reports. That's almost amazing. <laughs> I mean, when I talk to pastors, that's not exactly what I usually hear. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's what Paul can do for them. He can love them. He can love them by praying for them. If you love your friends, pray for them. That's a great place to start. It's not the place to end, but it's a great place to start. So the people you know who are in Christ Jesus, pray for them. Pray for me. And he says, how do we pray? We ask that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
the knowledge of God's will. What does he want you to do? And, and to know that in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We want you to have knowledge the world can't give you about the will of God for your lives. We want you to have something that's unavailable naturally. We want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, we want you to pursue first the kingdom of God. And, and it goes back again, as everything does, to Romans 12, 1, which is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's wisdom and understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding. That, that's the transformation of your mind. It's spiritual wisdom and understanding. You have wisdom and understanding for life now. None of us come to the gospel as a, as a blank slate, right? We've already developed worldviews. And what we're told here is get a different clue. I want you to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that you'll know how to live this life God's way. He says, so as, I want you to have this wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I don't want you just to have information. No, no, I want you to apply that to your life in order so you'll have this spiritual wisdom and understanding for one reason, so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that your life will display that spiritual wisdom and understanding, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul says, I want you to have all this so that your life will display the glory of God, and you'll be pleasing to Him, and you will witness to who He is by the way you live your life, by the things you do, not the things you know, but the things you do. So it's putting it into practice, making it go. And that's the reason Jesus says, all right, I answered your question. I gave you information about neighbors. Go and do likewise. Live it out. It's exactly the, the argument from Deuteronomy. He has delivered us from the domain of his darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says, You've, you, the, the greatest thing he could possibly do for you has already been done. Now live like it. Live like you believe that with all your heart. Don't be like everybody else. Have people marvel at your faith because they see it. They see it in action. Don't just talk a good talk. Walk a good walk. It's imperative that we do that. It's imperative for our own sake, but it's imperative for the sake of the world that Christians live like Christians, that we are different in every way from the world, that our priorities are different, that our attitudes are different, and that our love has a different character. It's not just doing things, it's doing things in love.